The first time that I laid eyes on Christina Miller was at an LMH boys basketball game. My high school career with Garden Spot was over. And uh, the LMH boys team made an electrifying run at the state championship. They won the district title, and I think they lost in states to a team that had a seven-foot kid on, so that's something. But I heard that Christina was headed to Grove City College. Oh, really? I was headed to Grove City College. And someone pointed her out to me at that game, and she was obviously beautiful, and so I nervously headed over with a perfect conversation starter, Grove City College. Thank you. Uh, now, you can know some things about a girl from, from a distance, what she looks like, uh, how does she carry herself, what expressions uh, do, does she put out there, who, who is she sitting with, uh, but it's when I went over to Christina and began conversation uh, that I began to know her. And I'm still enjoying getting, getting to know her. Watching from a distance doesn't build a relationship. You need to be close and to love and to listen. You can know about someone from a distance, political figures, athletes, uh, actors, but you don't know someone deeply until they make themselves known to you. You don't know Donald Trump. You don't know Nick Foles. You don't know Clint Eastwood, but you know your spouse. You know your best friend. You know your parents and your children because they have shared themselves with you in a special way. Last week was about God revealing himself to you through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. This week is more personal. It's better So here's where I'm headed. Creation gives you a stunning but distant view of God's eternal power and divine nature. But God's word, God's word pulls you closer and transforms you and brings you into intimate fellowship with God by grace through faith in the crucified and risen Lord. Creation gives you a stunning but distant view of God's eternal power and divine nature. But it's God's word, his word which pulls you closer and transforms you and brings you into intimate fellowship with God by grace through faith in the crucified and risen Lord. General revelation is beautifully eloquent, absolutely. But it can't give you close fellowship with God or tell you of salvation found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only special revelation or scripture reveals for you the beauty and eloquence of God's grace and redemption in Christ. The woods cannot give you what the Word gives you. The woods without the Word is a waste. The end of Psalm 19 is the apex. That's, this is like the thing because special revelation is redemptive revelation. What is special revelation? Well, I wish I had more time here to explain this thoroughly. Uh, we don't have the time, but for our purposes today, let me simply say this. Special revelation is God supernaturally revealing himself to his people through his word. Or special revelation is God spirit supernaturally communicating to his people the message of salvation through his son, the Messiah, in the pages of the Bible. Famous Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield said that special revelation is addressed to a special class of sinners to whom God would make known his salvation to rescue broken and deformed sinners from their sin and its consequences, end of quote. Everyone receives general revelation. 
But special revelation is received by God's chosen people by the gracious illumination of the Holy Spirit. As Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 2, the things of the Spirit are understood, are not understood rather, universally, but they are spiritually discerned. And only the Holy Spirit can enlighten someone's mind and heart to receive special revelation by faith. Acts 16, verse 14, makes it clear the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to the gospel given her by Paul. There's more to be said, but for now, that that will have to do. In verses 7 through 14, David explained for us how the Word of God pulls us from a distant view of God's glory and power into a close experience of God through His Word. This is Important to see, David connected the covenant name of the Lord with special revelation. Special revelation, covenant name of the Lord. In verse 1, God's name was El, or Almighty God, appropriate for general revelation. But transitioning into special revelation in verses 7 through 9, six times David used God's covenantal name, Yahweh. Of course, that makes sense. God entered into covenant with his people and he communicated to them uniquely. Now, you'll notice that I'm using the phrase God's word instead of law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules. Why am I making that change? It's because David was referring more broadly to all of God's self-revelation, including his gracious covenants and promises. I want to encourage you, if you get a chance, read John Calvin on the Psalms. He is excellent. Excellent. I don't always find him helpful, but on the Psalms, he hits a home run. He's really, really good. Read Calvin. He said this, David, in praising the moral law as he here does, speaks of the whole doctrine of the law, which includes also the gospel. And therefore, under the law, he comprehends Christ. David's discourse is not to be understood simply of the commandments, And of the dead letter, but that he comprehends at the same time the promises by which the grace of God is offered to us. The promises which the grace of God is offered to us. I agree. I think David had law and gospel in view as he wrote this song on God's special revelation for God's covenant people. So here are nine wonderful things Glorious things, spectacular things about God's word, and then a few helpful ways to respond to God's word. We begin with verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Number one, God's word is perfect and can revive your soul. Law in verse 7 is the Hebrew word Torah. You might have heard that word before, which here encompasses broadly the Lord's teaching. His people. James Boyce said that, quote, our best equivalent for the phrase the law of the Lord would be scripture or the word of God. So it's in a broader sense here. God's word is flawless and possesses complete integrity. It would be inconceivable for a perfect God's teaching to be imperfect in any way. It must be perfect. If Gary, if your name is Gary this morning, I'm sorry I'm picking on you. If Gary is a liar, he will say some true things. Uh, But you'll always be suspicious of Gary's words because Gary is a liar. God is perfect. Therefore, what he tells you will always be consistent with his own perfection. God's perfect instruction is so good and it can revive your soul. 
It can instill in you spiritual vigor and strength. It can refresh and restore you. God speaks life. And that's why preaching is so important. Now say that it's 115 degrees. All right? And your car broke down, of all things. And you're hiking to the gas station miles away without water. You have nothing. I mean, you are parched. Your lips are blistered. Maybe they're bleeding. And you're about to faint when just at the right time, someone stops and gives you a cool and sweet uh, glass or, you know, of water, a drink. Gave you a drink. And, and all of a sudden, you just revive. I mean, it's like you, you got this renewed energy and vigor from just one great drink of water. God's word is a cool drink of water for a spiritually thirsty soul. Nothing, not a beach vacation or a camping getaway can revive your soul like God can through his perfect law. David continued, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Number two, God's word is sure and can make you wise can make you wise. This word testimony in verse 7 is significant. It refers to the Lord's divine oath or covenant. That's significant. God swore an oath to his people. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is a promise. That is an oath. That is a covenant. And that covenant testimony is absolutely sure. It is absolutely certain for God's people. God gave his word and that settles it. Now, what does, what does that mean for those who trust God's word? Well, God makes them wise. When God's word is received by faith and treasured in the heart, the naive and the ignorant become wise. Wise. W- whatever IQ they may have, the most ignorant and foolish people in the world arrogantly assume their wisdom is sufficient. Their thinking is sufficient. Their ability to work things out is sufficient. But to be truly wise, you must become wise by God's word abiding in you. The wisest people in the world trust the testimony of God. Psalm 119 verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Do you want to be wise? then understand that understanding, knowledge, wisdom must be imparted to you through the unfolding of God's sure word. That's where wisdom comes from, from the Spirit through the word. On to verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Number three, God's word is right and can rejoice your heart. A, A precept is... Thus saith the Lord. That's a precept. It's a divine directive. So I want you to imagine for a moment a crooked line. And imagine that a draftsman takes that crooked line and draws up plans for your new house. Now that's going to be a funky house. That's a weird house. That's not going to be, the walls are not going to be right. Foundation's not going to be right. That's just going to be a weird house. The draftsman needs a straight edge. When David says that the precepts of the Lord are right, he means they are straight, they are level, they are righteous. Isaiah 26, 7 says, the path of the righteous is level. Isn't that cool? And it says, you make level the way of the righteous. Last summer, I was running at Black Rock Retreat Center. I do like to run. And the terrain became, shall we say, 
uneven uh, or, or irregular. And I was cruising down and around this little bend, and all of a sudden, I bit the dust. I mean, it was a scene. My arms were out. I hit my chest. I, I, I went down hard. And uh, actually, this is not maybe uncommon for me. I was in Pittsburgh one time running on the, the uh, sidewalk and uh, did basically the same thing. Must have caught my foot on something and tucked and rolled and ended up with my feet kind of out on the road there. That was interesting. And I wish people would see this stuff. I mean, that's hilarious. You can't waste a moment like that. It's like, please, let someone have enjoyed that moment. Did you see that guy bite it? That's just hilarious. But anyway, after I uh, fell at Black Rock, then the trail ahead of me became more like a mountain. I mean, I wasn't really running anymore, folks. It was more like rock climbing uh, through these boulders. God's Word is not like that. It's straight. It's level. It's righteous. Again, Calvin is spot on. He said... A man's life cannot be ordered aright unless it is framed according to the law of God, and that without this, he can only wander in labyrinths and crooked bypaths. Love that. Labyrinths and crooked bypaths. Do you want your life to be a frustrating trek through a crooked and confusing labyrinth? Is that that what you want? That's not what I want. Dead end after dead end, and then you're still left asking, how do I get out of this mess? I think it's true for all of us. Life can be very difficult and very confusing. We don't get all the answers, uh, but when the wisdom of God's Word lights your path, He gives you gladness in that path. God doesn't divulge to us everything, but He gives us what we need in Scripture. And if you trust His Word, you will find joy for your heart. If you turn to His precious Word and allow Him to speak words of life into you, uh, joy arouses. So, special revelation rouses a certain gladness in us that general revelation cannot. David continued in verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Number four, God's word is pure and can enlighten your eyes. God's word is divine cree. God's word is also really good news. When God speaks and reveals his will, it is faultless and it is holy, uncorrupted by evil. Psalm 12 verse 6 says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, on the ground, purified seven times. Now, is the media, pick any, that you consume ever faultless? Is it ever uncorrupted by evil or unbiased? No. And if you think so, let's have a talk. Let's have a talk. You're delusional. Uh, It's not. In fact, I don't think there's anyone in your life who without fail, gives you pure truth. You don't even tell yourself the pure truth. When God decrees, when God commands, it is always, and without fail, pure, pure. When you trust God's Word, you know that you're getting true and pure knowledge. God's Word makes your eyes bright. It makes your eyes clear so that you can see and you can know and you can understand and you can make sense of the world. Your word is a light to my path. Not your creation is a light to my path. 
To see the radiant purity of God, you cannot simply look to the mountains or look to the skies. You must look to Scripture in faith to behold the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. A sunrise will not answer your deepest questions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And yet God's Word reveals to you all of these answers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Enlightenment of the 18th century, Europe was defective because it elevated human reason above God's Word. Therefore, destroying for people any true sense of enlightenment. Now, notice that I've been saying God's Word can do these things. Please listen carefully. None of these things are certain realities for people who don't trust God's Word. They're not going to be for you unless you trust his word. These are certain realities for God's covenant people who by the Holy Spirit trust God's word like David did. You can read the Bible a million times over, over and over and over again, and it will do none of this for you until by grace you put your complete trust in Christ and believe what he tells you. In Scripture, then your soul is revived. Then you are made wise. Then your heart rejoices. And then your eyes are enlightened by the Word of God. And all these things, for those of you who trust in Christ alone, they are still yours. They will be yours. They are wonderful blessings, what you see in this song. Now, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Number five, God's word is clean and endures forever. Verse nine is a bit tricky. Uh, the phrase fear of the Lord almost seems awkward in the, the flow of it. And that's because David is using a figure of speech here where he, he used the effect in the place of the cause. The cause is God's word. And the effect is the fear of the Lord. And so the word of God received by faith produces fear and reverence and awe of the Lord in the believer's heart. So then what is actually clean here? God's word is clean and endures forever. Psalm 110 verse 160 says, the, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That might be Psalm 119. I might, that might be a typo there. Now, being clean was a big deal in the, the Old Testament. Uh, it still is a big deal in God's eyes. God, God's word is clean. It's clean. And God's word works to make God's people clean. To put within them fear and reverence and awe. God's word tells us how to worship God so we don't invent ways to fear and worship him. The, the, the word of God is clean and it is critical for us to overcome our temptations to invent worship habits and to instead cherish the worship God has revealed and ordained to us in his word. Creation cannot instruct you in how to fear God. But God's word describes for you in detail how God wants you to fear him and worship him. David added... The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Number six, God's word is true and righteous altogether. 
The, the rules of the law of the Lord, or you could say just decrees of the Lord, are established and absolutely trustworthy. If you gather together all of the just decrees of God, not just His commands, but all of His just decrees, they are individually and collectively entirely righteous. Again, Psalm 119 says, the sum of your word is truth. God's word, it corresponds and it coheres. It is logically consistent. It withstands scrutiny and squares with our experience. It also answers the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Well, how can this be? Because God's word is entirely true and entirely righteous altogether. Now, creation may tell you of your cause of being, but it will not tell you of your purpose of being, which special revelation does really eloquently. Now, in order to find encouragement from verses 10 and 11, which we're heading into, you really need to be on board with verses 1 through 9. Uh, otherwise, verses 10 and 11 will be entirely absurd to you. It just won't make sense. So listen very carefully to how David put it with verses 1 through 9 in mind. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 7, I'm sorry, point 7, God's word is better for you than storehouses of gold, storehouses of fine gold. 30 feet, this is, amazes me, 30 feet below the subway in New York City in Manhattan is a storehouse of 540,000 gold bars valued at nearly $200 billion. And God's people desire God's word more than all that gold. Preaching and studying your Bible is of more value to you than inheriting $200 billion of gold. Ludicrous if you don't understand verses 1 through 8. If the majority of churchgoers in America today were legitimately offered $200 billion of gold in exchange for one thing, they could never again hear, never again read, never again talk about the Bible, I bet many, if not most, would do it to their own destruction. Just my guess. The world thinks that you are crazy if you believe the Bible, and it thinks you're even more crazy if you value it more than massive storehouses of wealth. Psalm 119, verse 72 says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Solomon, of all people, said in Proverbs 8, verse 19, that the fruit of wisdom is better than gold, even fine gold, and its yield than choice silver. David and Solomon got it. They understood this. Kings! Wealthy men, they got it. The gains of God's wisdom are far greater than the gains of earthly wealth. Sadly, most people sing this tune. The precepts of the Lord are stifling, forbidding me of the things I really want. The one who grabs with mighty hold the glimmering worth of exquisite gold who esteems the wealth of the world much more than the wisdom and beauty of the Lord such a bore, will find in the end his riches were vain, for the word of the Lord was the much greater gain. It takes a massive act of God's sovereign grace to see the infinite value of God in his word. 
But when His grace so moves, when His grace so enlightens our eyes, His Word, His Word becomes sweetness to our souls. Number eight, God's Word is sweeter for you than honey. Now, honey is delicious and sweet, and you can imagine it just dripping down from the honeycomb, such pleasure in one little drop. Psalm 119, verse 103 expresses how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Proverbs 16, 24 adds, and please, please think very carefully about this. Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Sweetness to the soul. God's gracious words are sweetness to your soul. God created honey for us to enjoy. I hope you enjoy some good honey. Wamplers. Get some Wamplers honey. Really good. Okay? Enjoy it. And general revelation, it can be so sweet. So sweet. But how much sweeter is God's special revelation? For it is sweetness for your soul, for your soul. Why do so many Christians approach preaching with such apathy and indifference? Why are so many churchgoers stirred by their smartphone and bored by their Bible? Why does TV play a bigger role in many Christian homes than God's Word does? And I'll tell you why. Some don't know God at all. His Word is merely tradition. And they can't taste its sweetness. Some know God. They know God. They really do. But their wandering from the Word has caused them to forget its sweet taste. And so they need to come and they need to eat again so that they can taste again and be delighted. And even the most mature Christians find at times the Bible is completely unappealing. But they keep at it. They keep eating Trusting the sweet taste will come for them once again. Two more things, and then I'll close with several final applications. David said in verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Number nine, God's word both warns you of curses and promises you rewards. Warns you of curses and promises you of rewards. Imagine that a young family... Uh, is taking a walk together. Maybe it's a sunny, beautiful afternoon, and the children run ahead as they're accustomed to do in order to get to the, the playground before their parents. But there's a big problem in this story. The children mistake high-voltage equipment for a playground. No signs, no warnings, no fences. And when you think about that, that's just terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Big, bright warning signs that prohibit are really good for us. I mean, really helpful, gotta love them, they preserve life, and we should love them. David knew of the law's warning, the Lord's warning in the law. David heard of the devastating effects of breaking God's covenant. General revelation does not warn us of the devastating effects of breaking God's covenant stipulations. God expects moral perfection of you and me. Like no imperfection at all. Complete perfection under the law. And the law presents that with, with very gracious warnings. Take heed, it says. And David also knew of the Lord's promise of blessings 
in the law. David heard the gospel of the coming Messiah, heard sweet grace in the covenant God made with him and and knew the great rewards of keeping the covenant by the power of God. David was certainly aware of his moral failure, certainly aware that he was desperate for the grace and rescue of God, and yet he also knew the rewards of grace-empowered obedience and faithfulness to God. God's word is desirable and sweet for two reasons. It warns of death in covenant-breaking, and it promises us life in grace-empowered covenant-keeping. In Christ, and by the power of His Spirit, we are able to avoid the curses and instead have and pursue the rewards. General revelation cannot do this for you, Uh, but special revelation can. I'd like to wrap this up by asking this question. How should you respond to God's special revelation? His word. I want you to look closely at verses 12 through 14, and you'll see humility and honesty in David's lyrics as he expressed his great need uh, for God's grace. And so here are five quick applications in light of David's concluding lines. Number one, admit your radical sinfulness. Admit your radical sinfulness. David said, who can discern his errors or who can understand my inadvertent or careless sins? Leviticus 14 and Numbers 15 talk about unintentional sins. Probably what David was referring to here. He added hidden faults, probably referring to the sins that in his life that he was unaware of, that he was committing and didn't even know. So what was, what was David doing here? He was admitting his radical sinfulness and, and need of God's rescuing grace. God's word warns you of your radical sinfulness And the consequences of it. Heidelberg number three says, from where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. And then number five adds this. Can you keep all God's law perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. You're inclined by nature. So am I. So my question is, have you admitted to God Have you admitted to yourself, have you admitted to others that you are indeed a lawbreaker? You are a covenant breaker, sinful to the bone and in desperate need of God's redeeming grace. See, in light of the perfection of God's law, David knew his own radical sinfulness and he he just helps us to see it, our own. Do you know yours? Number two, plead for God's pardon from sin. Plea for God's pardon from sin. He said, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Or you could say, acquit me of hidden faults. David begged for God's pardon. For God to see his faith and consider him righteous in his sight. You see, the sacrificial system of Israel, it foreshadowed Christ and it taught David about substitutionary atonement for the pardon of sins where an animal died in his place for his sins so that by faith God would render or consider or reckon him righteous. It's very similar to Abraham. God's word promises pardon to everyone who pleads for it and trusts the death of Christ as the means of it. Are you pleading with God that Christ's sacrifice on the cross would pardon your sins, all of them? Are you pleading? Do you long for God to count you innocent of all your moral failures? Then look to Christ by faith. 
Look to Christ by faith and receive his righteousness as your own by faith so that you too can can be considered blameless. You too can be considered innocent under the law by God. Number three, ask for the Spirit's help to avoid sin and make you free. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. That's huge. That's a huge line. David knew of his own natural tendency to sin boldly against God. He knew that sin would dominate him, and so he he asked God graciously to restrain him, to keep him back, and to make sure that sin didn't actually dominate him, didn't rule him, didn't reign in his life, didn't have his authority over him anymore. Now, why didn't he just make a New Year's resolution? Because David knew he couldn't stop sinning. You just don't up and stop, but that his only hope of being restrained and freed was God rescuing him, was God reaching into his life and helping him, keeping him back. That's sovereign grace. Be very, very careful not to trust in your own ability or strength or resolve to overcome sin. Be very careful with that. You can't do it. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. You cannot do it. And we must remember that. But Christ did overcome sin. He did it for us. We have a victor in Christ. He has broken you from the authority of sin. He has broken you from the power of sin to keep you back by His Spirit from audacious sins against God and to keep you free from that dominion, that puppeteering of sin in your life. Faith is trusting the Spirit to do that for you, to to show up and to come through in your moments of severe and utter weakness. Back in verse 11, David referred to himself as the Lord's servant, every servant of Jesus Christ, of the Lord has a propensity to sin still. We have a tendency towards sin, but with the Holy Spirit, we also have a desire for righteousness that he puts in us and the power that he puts in us to overcome sin. Without the restraining grace of God, you and I are monsters. Monsters, unfathomably wicked. Monsters. And when you feel yourself gravitating towards those horrible sins, the ones that you know better, but you struggled all your life with those things and you feel yourself going towards them, there is a certain attraction there. You have to begin by admitting you can't do it apart from Christ. You can't do it and you have to admit that. And then you must plead with the Spirit for help and strength. Plead with Him to give you grace in your moment of weakness. And then you must trust that you are already free in Christ and that the Holy Spirit will actually show up and help you. That He is there in your moment of need. That He will strengthen you. And then with with much gratitude, much thankfulness, you've got to avoid those sins. And then you have to enjoy your freedom in Christ. Isn't that great? Four, count on the righteousness of Christ. David's lyrical order in verses 12 and 13 is extremely important. Don't miss it. Notice David didn't say, after my discipline and hard work, then I shall be blameless. Blamelessness and innocence comes after God's rescuing and empowering grace. David knew that God promised a seed 
This is so precious from Genesis 3.15. He knew the seed would rise. He knew that God would send the one to come and to stomp on the head of Satan and to win, to be the victor on his behalf. And so David was not foolishly looking in any way to any righteousness that would have been in himself. On the contrary, he knew of a righteousness outside of himself and was pleading for God's grace and counting on the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. David was counting on God making him righteous, declaring him righteous, counting him as righteous, which is essentially trust in the Messiah who is righteous. So as you trust in Christ to keep you from sin, understand that the righteousness of Christ is already and fully yours by faith. Don't, don't trust in your own performance. Why would you do a dumb thing like that? I mean, I know we do it sometimes, and we're like, oh, why? But that's just idiotic. We, we should not base our acceptance before an almighty God on our own performance. That can't make us blameless and innocent before God, but instead, trust that God has imputed to you the righteousness of His perfect Son, that it is yours by faith, and that God counts you as righteous in Christ, and that he will help you pursue righteousness so you don't run headlong into sin and destroy yourself. That's not what God wants for his children, and he's not going to let that happen either. The last one, number five, by grace, by grace, strive to talk, think, and live according to God's word in order to please your rock and your redeemer, your God. I say by grace because you can't do it on your own. You can't. You need Christ, and you have Christ. You have him in the gospel. So as his spirit leads, say with David, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're already acceptable to God in Christ. So then, Ask God for help to, to strive, to talk and think and live in a way that's acceptable to God. You are accepted, so live in a way that's acceptable. You follow on that? You're already accepted. Now live in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to God. God is your rock. God is your redeemer. Now cry out to God to help you live to please him. Receiving God's grace doesn't mean you just sit there. Well, I can't do it. I'm not going to do anything. I might as well just sit here and have some Pringles. All right? That's not how it works. His grace compels you to live to please Him. You do something, but you do it by His sovereign grace. Yes. Now, you can tell that David didn't want to do anything that displeased his covenant Lord. That was grace. Is the cry of your heart, how can I please my Father that I love I just want to please him. How can I do that? Now, some people say that beer is an acquired taste or uh, maybe a certain type of music or something like that. There is a natural appeal and taste for general revelation. Everybody has it. But special revelation is an acquired taste. We acquire the taste for it and begin to enjoy its sweetness when we know and love God. Otherwise, we have no taste for Scripture. It will be stupid and uninteresting apart from union with Christ. If God's word isn't sweet for you, you must ask yourself, do I know God? 
Or do I know God as I should? You may know God, it's just you're in a tough time. And you need to simply taste. You've got to taste. And you've got to have more tastes and more tastes and keep eating until it becomes sweet for you. Until the Holy Spirit opens that up for you and gives you that sweet taste. Either way, wherever you are, you and I need a steady diet of the Lord's perfect law. His word. Creation gives you a stunning but distant view of God's eternal power and divine nature. But it is God's word. God's Word, God's Word, God's Word, which pulls you closer to God and transforms you and through Christ delights you with sweet, sweet fellowship with the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for being faithful to us to speak so clearly. Thank you for David and his faithful witness and the the sovereign grace that was at work in his life and the, the unique work of the Holy Spirit to have him pen such meaningful words of, of inspiration and, and authority. They come from you, God, through the hand of David. I wonder what it, would, what it would have sounded like to hear David sing that song. And so, God, I ask that this song would penetrate deep within our heart and soul and be a sweet taste to us, that your word would every day become increasingly sweet to our taste, sweetness for our soul. We can't make that, God, happen. We can't make it happen because we will be so distracted by screens and sports and good weather and, and on such a beautiful day that is meant to glorify you, we'll go out and forget our, our Bible. Won't even pay any attention to it because the weather is getting nice. So God, I wonder what you would have for us in your word, that when we have a steady diet of it, when we love preaching and we love teaching and we love researching your word to have you speak, God, sometimes we'll we'll admit it's not interesting. We'd rather do other things. That's our problem, not the word's problem and not your problem. you, You have no deficiencies. And so, God, because we're so dull, would you excite us for your word? for your glory and our good. We need your word, but we just don't get excited. So would you, would you do something there in us? Stir in us from hearing this word, which you can strengthen us through if we receive it by faith, God? So be gracious to us. May there be a resurgence of the word of God in our hearts, in our church, in our community, that people are hungering to hear from you. All for your son's glory, we pray. Amen.